Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast in the New Books Network. My name is Derek Litbeck and I'll be your host. Today we have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Brandon Mills about his book, The World Colonization Made. The Racial Geography of Early American Empire, published by the University of Pennsylvania Press in 2020. Dr. Mills teaches at the University of Colorado, Denver. The World Colonization Made rethinks the commonly told history of the African colonization society and the colonization movement writ large. Exploring how this movement evolved over the course of the 19th century, Dr. Mills illustrates how we must think of the colonization movement as not just a response to domestic concerns, but as a step many Americans wish to take towards creating a U.S. empire. From the rise and fall of the colonization movement, Dr. Mills shows the many converging issues, political factors, and ideologies that went into what ultimately ultimately became a failed attempt at U.S. expansion. Dr. Mills, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me, Derek. So I guess to get things started, can you tell our listeners how you came to this project, why you decided to study it? Yeah, thanks. Um, really, the the origins of this project are long time ago, actually in my undergraduate days at Michigan State University. I, I wrote a senior thesis um, that was on early 20th century so-called back to Africa movements. Um, proto kind of Garvey, uh, Marcus Garvey era movements in the early 20th century that were kind of in conversations about black nationalism and pan-Africanism. And, and so I was interested in questions about how African-Americans were conceiving of the relationship to Africa in, in that period. Um, and so I focused all my efforts on it then. But then when I got to graduate school, I, I started looking back to the pre-Civil War era and, and thinking about the fact that there were similar ideas about return to Africa or, or um, African-Americans creating colonies within Africa um, that were supported mainly by white politicians and reformers in the U.S. at the time, and that it, in fact, was opposed by most free African-Americans um, in that era. And so I, I really became fascinated by how pervasive and popular this idea was at this moment. Um, 
And I, over time, became immediately struck by the fact that while the U.S. was, you know, cr- creating an, uh, an overseas colony um, and driven by an American colonization society that literally had the word colonization in its title, it was almost entirely um, discussed as separate from questions of, of U.S. empire, settler colonization, U.S. expansionism. It only occasionally, if you look at the literature on the subject, it, it touches on these. So I, I really kind of asked why that was and and followed that thread um, to where it led me. And, and that's kind of the process that led to my dissertation and then um, into the book. So that's how I got there. <laughs> and we've kind of hinted at this already, but compared to these previous histories, you know, what are they actually saying and how do they frame, you mm-hmm. know, this entire colonization movement um, compared to the way that you are sort of expanding this to be, you know, a story of empire? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of different ways that people have studied this topic over over the years, um, and there's a lot of great research out on it. It's certainly not ignored um, as as something a subject within U.S. history, but primarily what you see is it's studied through the lens of the politics of slavery and anti-slavery in the U.S. Um, or through the politics of of kind of black political activism as they emerge in the antebellum era, and. I think those are really useful and extremely important ways of understanding the significance of the movement, um, particularly if we look at how um, colonizationism was framed as a kind of a so-called moderate anti-slavery stance um, during the, the early years of the 19th century. Um, and then ultimately how African-Americans really developed a kind of uh, political identity in northern communities by opposing the movement by and large. and the the abolitionist movement's roots are really in um, in opposing colonizationism. And so that is the story that we, we've often thought of this as, is really about these kind of domestic um, political concerns and the fact of, of the, the kind of form that that took, which was to create a colony outside then current U.S. borders across um, the Atlantic Ocean in, in Africa has been somewhat ancillary. And there have been ways to kind of explain why people had arrived at that, um, but, but not really interrogating what the meaning and significance of that, that kind of settlement is. And in addition, kind of looking broader than that. So, so while I don't, I, I do kind of approach this differently than those subjects, I, I incorporate many of the insights of that prior literature. Um, another way I kind of depart from the previous literature is focusing less on that formal colonization movement itself. Um, the, the American Colonization Society, which becomes the organization that's the primary vehicle for this, this um, idea, and the colony of Liberia in West Africa that becomes the, the, the primary site of, of the ambitions of colonizationists. And that has been covered extensively in this, in this um, prior literature that I just referenced. But really, the way I thought about this more expansively and trying to contextualize it in a, in a deeper sense was thinking about the, the migration of this idea over time. Um, and my book kind of frames it from the American Revolution up through the U.S. Civil War. And thinking about how that idea of colonizationism or the ideology of colonizationism, a set of ideas circulates that was very popular and influential for nearly a century of the United States, um, first century of existence, basically. I'm thinking about how that evolves um, over time and what the, the implications of that was. So 
much of the book does orbit inevitably around the ACS and um, Liberia itself because that is the kind of central core of the movement. But I try to really trace it to all the other places that that, that set of colonizationist ideas go. And I know for myself, you know, one of the things that you said in the beginning of that response was that, you know, this is a topic that, you know, has had plenty of attention um, in the past. And for myself, you know, I kind of I kind of chuckle at that because I think for us, it's like it's pretty, you know, we know about it. It's not exactly surprising, but I know for myself, I didn't learn about, you know, the colonization movement until sometime midway through college. And I was absolutely flabbergasted when I learned about it, especially that, you know, Liberia, the the modern country was actually just a colony of America for this purpose. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it, I remember when I first encountered it, it was high school, you know, and it was literally a footnote, you know, in a in probably a lecture that my high school history teacher mentioned. It was like one line, you know, and it and it was often portrayed as a quote unquote refuge for former slaves, which in a sense it was, but didn't deal at all with the displacement of the indigenous peoples that were in that region, nor the fact that there was a lot of opposition to it among free African-Americans in the U.S. Um, for its racist ideas. And so the, the way, if you ever, if the kind of average person in the United States kind of encounters this idea, it's a very surface level kind of understanding of it. And yeah, once you get into um, deeper study of history, you, you learn more about it. And specifically if you're looking at slavery and anti-slavery, but it's, it's amazing how little people know about this um, in, in kind of the wider U S culture. And so you said that, you know, you're the sort of grand arc of your book goes from the American revolution to the civil war roughly. And you kind of sketch out basically throughout the book, how this movement evolved and everything. And so when looking at the years after the American Revolution, what form did colonization plans typically take and why are these uh, sort of initial years so important? What I try to think about in the book is, is this immediate post-revolutionary era um, in which we see colonization ideas really before they're a movement. Um, because, you know, the typically the way we, we frame colonizationism is leading up to um, or the main event is the the creation of the, the American Colonization Society in Liberia and, and that movement. But I wanted to focus some attention on this period of time when the ideas were very messy, incohate, uh, ill-formed, and kind of all over the place in terms of where people were proposing colonies, what these colonies' relationship to the U.S. would be. And there was no formal organization that was advancing these. And so it's fascinating to look at these colonies before they coalesce really into a movement. Um, and what I try to pay a lot of attention to in that um, period, which is roughly from the American revolution till the form of the ACS um, formation of the ACS in the mid 1810s is that notably most of these plans were focused on North America. There were a handful that were interested in Sierra Leone, the already existing British colony that was similar to Liberia but many of many American plans focused on creating colonies within the North American continent. And I think that's really important to understanding because it really plays into how the United States was evolving its own conception of itself as an empire, as, as, as an empire on um, a settler empire on the continent of North America. It was planning to colonize um, in more indigenous territory and incorporate that into a political structure and state that um, was evolving 
rapidly during this period of time. And so the colonies that we see proposed in this kind of early post-revolutionary era um, spanned the continental territory um, that would eventually come to be claimed by the United States um, from um, parts of the old Northwest or what's the current Midwest, uh, many parts of the Louisiana territory, Missouri territory, and even parts further West in the Rocky Mountain region in California. And I'm trying to show really that moment of time when we see many white Americans were projecting these kind of fantasies or um, these ideas about a different racial geography of the United States empire in North America. Um, And they were very wide ranging. Um, They were, you know, not really organized in any sense. Um, But it's fascinating to kind of think about the fact that at this moment, they at least included a place for black settler colonies alongside white settler colonies, despite the fact that they were very provisional and circumscribed in the way um, these people were imagining them. So that's really, I think, important in terms of of thinking about that era. But the other thing I think that is really important is, as as you mentioned, it's coming after the American Revolution. And I think that this is being situated within the context of what many historians have characterized as the age of revolution is crucial here, that I characterize it in the book as in the context of counter-revolution and specifically um, the revolution that follows the U- the American Revolution, um, the Haitian Revolution within um the Caribbean colony of Saint-Domingue, um, which was, of course, an offshoot of the French Revolution. Um, and the Haitian Revolution, of course, is famously led by um, free people of color and enslaved people um, on the island of Saint-Domingue and was really led to a wave of fear among whites in the U.S. about republicanism or republican ideas being unleashed by the actions and autonomy of enslaved people. And so I think it's really crucial to think about the colonizationism is being developed in that crucible. And many of the early colonization proposals that I talk about in the book that are in North America are, um, are grappling with the idea of maybe fostering and managing colonies as a way to control um, those forces that they're con- concerned would be unbeliefed, unleashed by the prospect of, of a slave revolution. And as you said, you know, these early plans in this early period is sort of, you know, really disorganized. There's no sort of, you know, defining. It's not really a movement yet. But as it began to sort of coalesce over time, what sort of defining doctrines um, sort of took the forefront and why? And particularly one of the things that I, I really enjoyed reading in your work was the idea of racial republicanism. And so what is that and how did that play a role in all of this? Yeah, thanks for asking that, because I think it's really important to think about that formative moment when the colonization movement does coalesce and moves away because it shows the sets of ideas that do animate the movement and persist on, even as um, we retain some of those earlier ideas, particularly the idea um, that that persists of it being in the form of a settler colony. Um, but the term that you mentioned, racial republicanism, is a term that I, I kind of coined to use in the book as, as a way not to refer to something that was circulated at the time, which is to say that they, people weren't describing this in those terms. They weren't saying racial republicanism, but it's really a set of ideas that they're expressing, which is um, a, basically a simultaneous commitment to the, the notion of self-government or, or republicanism and to maintaining or even harnessing racial difference and racial hierarchy as, as, as wedded to republicanism. And so the basic idea there that was that 
black people um, could govern themselves, but only under the kind of political conditions that were deemed appropriate um, by by whites in in their kind of minds. And so, ostensibly, it's it's admitting the possibility that um, African Americans could participate in in self government, but it was grounded in this really kind of clear racial distinctions that are emerging um, and maintaining the hierarchies that had been developing, of course, over the entire um, period of enslavement. And so what I I try to show in the book is that despite the fact that we see this rhetoric uh, among whites that is really emphasizing a kind of separate political existence for African-Americans, whether it be on the North American continent or whether it be in Liberia, and this notion of potentially building a black republic um, in one of those places, the thing that is really consistent um, is that they were mostly concerned with constructing their own racial republic, a white racial republic within North America. So in a sense, this racial republicanism was, um, while it was the, 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 the idea was that um, non-white groups, and it's also applied to um, other groups like Native Americans, but, but African-Americans um, in particular could govern themselves but the, the fundamental goal was really to justify um, the racial kind of uh, structure of U.S. political life. And, and that's kind of the fundamental, I think, um, driving force behind that, um, that, that idea. And you've mentioned Native Americans at a couple of uh, points here and, you know, in particular with the sort of first years of this, uh, you know, quote unquote movement where it's not really a movement yet. And the idea of sort of just taking even more native lands to make colonies, you point out that there are sort of Native American or plans to colonize Native Americans themselves as well during this time period that um, those plans and the ideas that under underlay them are both sort of distinct but also have overlap with the sort of broader things that you're talking about with African colonization and the colonization of African Americans. And so what's going on there? Because I think that in particular is an idea or sorry, I should say a subject that even people familiar with African colonization haven't heard that much about. Yeah, it's it's something that, you know, you see come up previously in the literature every now and again. Um, it's been there's been a lot more attention to it recently, um, particularly with Nick Guyatt's book that came out a few years ago, uh, Bind Us Apart. And that that book looked at it as well. There are a handful of other examples, but I think it's really crucial to understand that relationship between colonizationism um, as it's expressed with African Americans and other forms of of colonizationism as they're uh, as they're applied to Native peoples, um, and w- the way I try to think about it in the book is that these colonies for African Americans are emerging within a backdrop in which the United States is rapidly colonizing indigenous lands in North America, and in the initial phases, as you mentioned, it's it's expressing itself in the idea that African-Americans themselves could participate in that, that they might form colonies that would maybe advance U.S. settlement in the West, um, participate as affiliated settler societies, or, or even independent republics that would be aligned with the U.S. Over time, this um, evolves into the African colonization movement, which all of the, the focus is on Africa. But you see, as the colonization movement formalizes itself on around the ACS, and colonizationism becomes a huge topic for discussion among politicians in the late 1810s and early 1820s, you see a lot of cross-pollination and overlap between colonizationist ideas. And particularly as um, 
many activists begin to think about them in the context of native peoples, um, which uh, colonizationism as as a term, and, and we even see that that same word being used in certain uh, by certain activists to apply to both um, African Americans and Native Americans. So one uh, figure I focus on in the book is is Isaac McCoy, who's a Baptist minister who proposes a colony in the West that looked very similar to many, um, uh, the kind of kind of pan, uh, or sorry, excuse me, the, the racial Republic that was imagined in Liberia, which is, um, to say that it would bring together, um, different groups of, of, of native peoples, different native nations into a kind of pan Indian Republic in the West. And this was to be a process that would be kind of managed and directed by whites to foster, um, some kind of independent society that looked very similar um, to some what was going on in Liberia. And many of these activists reference the same um, ideas or directly link their ideas to the colonization movement, use the rhetoric and language of it. And so you have the, the movement between these, these sort of discourses happening at this time, and they're linked together conceptually at many moments. But what my book tries to point out is, very notably, they met, met different fates as policies for the federal government, um, which is to say that the federal colonization policy um, during the 1820s and 1830s largely fails to materialize. And there's a lot of factors that I go into for this, um, but it's notable to, 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 to point out that Indian colonizationism, as it was conceived by uh, McCoy, doesn't quite materialize in the way that he envisions, but it does set the the um the stage for what becomes federal removal policy and the creation of of what is known as Indian territory um in in the west and so we we do have um we have this kind of moment at which both of these ideas are being discussed as something that the federal government would engage in um removing what were seen as problematic or undesirable um populations from the United States racialized populations and then creating kind of political structures that would be harnessing this, this notion of racial difference. But I think the, the crucial thing to think about for the larger narrative um, that I'm trying to talk about in the book is that we can see how these were pitched differently within the scope of U.S. empire. Um, and, and, and I go into great detail about how there are distinctions that many policies or makers are are making between what they consider to be continental and overseas empire as being largely distinct phenomenon that the U.S. is engaging in, and that you know there is an idea that um, uh, a colony of of Native Americans in the West was acceptable within the scope of of what the United States was imagining uh, in terms of expansion on the continent, primarily because. It was driven by a desire for um, colonizing native lands um, that they wanted to um, to remove them from, but at the same time, um, an, a colony in 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 West Africa was seen largely as being outside the scope of what the United States imagined itself to be to be um, engaged in as an empire, and and you see a lot of examples of people trying to kind of split hairs about what the, the, the notion of, of the U S as an empire and what it looked like, um, and what the, the scope and boundaries of that were. Um, and, and so I think it's really important to keep that conversation, um, in, in the back of our minds, particularly as the U S 
um, you know, late at later moments kind of discards many of those distinctions in looking overseas. But at this moment, it's seen as a crucial one, perhaps a, a self-justification for um, the the own imper- the imperatives of, of whites to settle on native lands. But ultimately, one, I think that is important kind of thinking about the conceptual framework that we see um, both of these colonizationist ideas emerging. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash NBN50 to get 50% off. And I know I particularly appreciated um, the material that you had on that because I think, you know, it's obviously difficult for any historian to try and, you know, cover a lot of material. And obviously when, you know, you're covering, say, race and slavery and everything like that and African-Americans in uh, the country, you know, that's one huge topic in and of itself. And so it's definitely hard to sort of branch out and incorporate things like um, subjects dealing with Native Americans and indigenous people. But the sort of clear overlap um, that you are able to show there really sort of bolsters your argument in my case. And I, I really appreciated being able to see how these ideas are sort of circulating outside of just, you know, the distinct, you know, African colonization. And so one of the things that you um, look at later on are these events that you call colonization riots. And so what are these and what do they represent? So I use this term colonization riot um, basically to refer to groups of white Americans um, engaging in kind of disorganized um, street violence and mobs that were aimed at at um, black communities in roughly the eight, late 1820s throughout the Early to mid 1830s, um, and what you see in those those um, mobs and violence are many of the uh, the actions being kind of instigated in direct or indirect ways by um, colonizationist newspapers and newspaper editors who are advancing these ideas. The mobs sometimes themselves endorsing um, colon- uh, colonization proposals or the ACS. Um, and so you have a kind of either implicit or explicit connection between the, the colonization movement and and these these um, various uh, actions against uh, African American communities um, in northern states. And sometimes these are referred to as anti-abolitionist riots or mobs, and they often were. They were they were at the moment um, when abolitionism was emerging, and, and that part of that story is 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 the relationship between colonizationism as a kind of anti-slavery view. Um, but I'm, I think it's important to think about them as colonization um, mobs, particularly because 
I'm interested in exploring how they represented a kind of popular expression of support for colonizationist ideas among certain groups of whites. Um, you primarily we, we encounter colonizationism through the activities of the kind of middle class or upper class reformers who are endorsing these plans. And really, it's many of the um, well-known political leaders um, throughout the first century of American life did in some way support this. And you had lots of prominent um, ministers and um, other reformers and activists supporting this. But you can see how this really was playing into popular racist animus against um, uh, black communities. And that's, and I think that's important because a lot of my book is focusing on um, analyzing how this Republicanism was applied to African-Americans in the context of the colonization movement that, that they, um, that they could embody the Republic ideal if they were separated from the U S in some ways. And, And what I'm trying to show with the colonization riots is that, um, really this trying to reveal in a a sense that this was an often wholly disingenuous rhetoric. Um, It's not necessarily the same people who are endorsing um, this idea um, who, who were, um, you know, the people who were out on the streets were not necessarily active members of the ACS, but it really shows that colonizationism, I think contained a violently kind of exclusionary politics at its core that could be activated um, in, in the streets. And this is kind of one of the kind of clear examples we see of it. Um, and also given the fact that I have, I've mentioned a couple of times the widespread um, a- opposition to the colonization movement by many Northern um, African-American communities and activists in, um, that um, really kind of very shortly after the movement was created, s- set themselves against it. And I think that this shows you the, the fact that the movement persisted and even grew in the, in 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 sense defiance of the wishes of of the um the kind of active core of of black communities within the US shows that the the kind of um the violence behind the the movement itself that there there was a kind of disregard for the fact that the people who were ostensibly going to become the colonists and these exemplars of republican ideals did not necessarily want that position that was being um foisted upon them by um, whites who are imagining this kind of uh, this this role for them, and so so that's that's really kind of the the I think the the function of thinking about colonization riots in in the context of the the larger ideas of the book. Yeah, and I think that one one of the points you made about how there's typically a focus on how you know these movements are ma- mostly made up of you know middle class upper middle class people. And yet, you know, there are people on the ground who are subscribing to these views and trying to sort of actualize them as well. It is really important for seeing how, as you said, how this movement develops and grows over time, even if it does eventually fail. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's it's interesting to think about those um, those efforts to. To kind of translated into a, a popular rhetoric uh, uh, of racial violence um, that, that we see in those riots because, you know, there's ebbs and flows in the, the, the fortunes of the colonization movement. And typically the way the story is told is that it's, it's through the institutional um, lens and that when all of the abolitionists really attack the movement, many of them themselves flip sides and withdraw and become colonizationists become abolitionists. Um, and there's a whole other institutional crises for the ACS. That is the decline of colonizationism until it, at a later point in the 1840s, somewhat resurges 
um, and then ultimately declines again. And what I'm trying to show is in many ways that these ideas penetrated American culture more broadly, even at the moments when, for instance, the ACS was in financial crisis, which is the late um, 1830s and 1840s. Um, there was these ideas still held on and we can see the resurgence of it in the 18, the later 1840s as a product of the fact that there was um, at least this legacy of buy-in among many people to this idea, even if the the organization itself was, um, you know, in trouble as, as an institution, these ideas, I think, tapped into something that um, was, was being expressed more broadly. And that's what I was trying to, trying to get out of there. And one of the things that you look at is how the sort of U.S. perception of um, independence and nationhood in Liberia, when it becomes a sort of talking point and possibility, how that is like the colonization movement at large related to domestic ideas about black Americans and how people are talking about, you know, the possibility or, you know, lack thereof in some people's minds of nationhood for Liberia yeah. as, you know, an extension of commentary on the place of black Americans. And so what is going on there? Yeah, I, I mean, I focus one chapter in my book really around this, the moment of Liberian independence in 1847 um, and the, the moment at which it declares itself now the Republic of Liberia uh, in in how that becomes invested with um, great symbolic significance for many different audiences. And, and it's a kind of, I think it's a very kind of resonant moment for looking at the different things that are going on with the colonization movement. Um, and in, in the book, I focus on a few different ways that white colonizationists or supporters of the colonization movement in the US were thinking about this. One um, way is that it was allowing them at least nominally to claim that Liberia was an alternative place where African-Americans could at least technically become citizens of a republic, right? And so now <clears throat> this in some ways was, um, was, was an actualization of the promise or the so-called promise of that, um, that initial movement was that this was a colony, but that it would also ultimately become an independent nation. Um, and so so this plays into some of the discussions um, that we're, we were talking about a moment ago in that, um, particularly in the Midwestern states, um, places like Indiana, Illinois, um, uh, Michigan, uh, Ohio, those states, we see a resurgence of interest in colonization-ism um, in the 1840s, and it plays out. In, in many ways, in the exclusionary laws that are passed by the um, state legislatures or um, written into state um, constitutions um, in those states. And in that, in that, those discussions, we constantly see the resurfacing of, of the idea that Liberia op um, offered a model or an alternative for African-Americans that, that basically justified their exclusion from any sorts of civil citizenship or right to residency within those states. So, you know, they say, well, you can't, in some laws like in Indiana, explicitly um, banned African-Americans from migrating into the state um, and, wed and wedded that to the creative creation of a formal um, state colonization board that would uh, aid in removing those African-Americans who lived in the state um, to go to Liberia. And, and then many states um, uh, kind of doubled down on, on different forms of exclusion from uh, all, all, all manner of citizenship rights 
Many had very few in the first place, but uh, made it even stronger in certain cases. And all of this was linked to the idea that, you know, you, they, they can't be settlers in, in those states, nor can they be citizens in those states, but they could settle in another place in Liberia that was now um, an independent republic. Um, and so we see that playing in on, um, I think, an important kind of into domestic political concerns where it's, it, again, a very disingenuous rhetoric and, you know, we shouldn't take it too much at face value. But I think it's fascinating to think about the, the fact that that is the, the kind of leg that they're standing on. They're not saying that they um, that African-Americans deserve no rights anywhere, but they're only kind of um, dictating a certain circumscribed context in which they deserve those rights. Um, the other thing that I think is really important to think about, particularly as we look forward, is that there's a lot of attention by whites on on the the symbolic significance of um, Liberia as a projection of of U.S. power abroad, um, and that it, it in a sense there there um, is a repeated kind of fascination with what is often referred to as Liberia as a United States of Africa, and this phrase is used um, comes up before even independence, but also at the same time as independence. And what they mean by that is that um, you know it based some of its political institutions. Um, and uh, and cultural institutions on on the United States, and thus was really an exemplar of the United States putting its po- you know uh, political, economic, cultural stamp on the rest of the world. Um, and so it it kind of served as a way of thinking through, I think, different ways that the U.S. would articulate its power, particularly um, as we look further into the late nineteenth and early twentieth century when the U.S is looking to other places and claiming to be bringing, um, uh, for instance, democratic um, forms of governance to those places, um, but often kind of with the with different agendas at play, uh, whether they be economic or, or uh, military agendas, and, and very often bolstering the idea that, it, you know, in some ways the goal was to make those versions of, of the United States. So I think that's, it's, I think it's a rich site for thinking about that. The other thing, though, I think is really important interesting to think about is the place that African-Americans have in relation to that independence, because um, much of black um, uh, uh, thinking about the the colonization movement in Liberia up to this point had been really aimed at opposing it and its racist assumptions. And really at this moment, there's a some to some degree a reconsideration of that among um, free uh, black leaders in the North who thought about you know this it, it, this moment at which Liberia was claiming itself to be the world's second black republic after um, Haiti, and that it, there might be some avenue for African Americans to achieve um, independence or autonomy there. Um, and so there's some investment by by um, by by black leaders in that prospect. Um, but it's but ultimately, I would say that there's a um, a, a kind of reversion to skepticism about um, the, 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 the kind of vision of, of independence that is advanced in Liberia, particularly around the way that whites are framing this and, and continue to really use it as a justification to only worsen the position of African-Americans within the U.S. That, that you know, despite the fact that maybe um, some uh, free African-Americans in the U.S. might look to Liberia as some kind of model of political governance or some prospect of, of 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 future hopes, um, that does not change the fact that the the colonization movement in the U.S. is driven by 
um, white racial ideas and and particularly ones that are aimed at vi- often violently at excluding African Americans. And as the colonization movement sort of enters its, you know, kind of ending phase in a way, um, one of the things that you look at is how uh, the ideas of colonization, they shift from uh, being mostly focused on Africa to incorporating both Central and South America, as particularly as sectional tensions increase in the country and how those uh, shifts are actually a sort of byproduct of that. And so what is going on um, during this sort of ending phase of colonization? Yeah, this is a kind of final kind of um, phase to the the colonization story that I'm telling here um, that, as I mentioned before, kind of ends in the Civil War era. Um, And it's a really fascinating moment, I think, in a lot of ways, um, because what you have in the 1850s and 1860s is the emergence of the Republican Party and that the, the, the anti-slavery politics of that party and the, the different constituencies that it speaks to um, are, are often themselves longtime supporters of colonizationism and are and predisposed to it, the, many of them coming from the Whig Party, which had previously been more supportive of colonizationist ideas. Um, and so what happens as they grow in power in the 1850s is that you have the, um, the reanimation of colonizationism kind of one last time um, in uh, the era before and during the Civil War. And this ultimately results in the first, what I would consider to be the first federal colonization policy, which is advanced by the Lincoln administration um, during the era of the Civil War and the early years of, of his administration. And so um, you have this, this impetus for it that is in some ways being driven by all the sectional tensions. But I think in some ways, the, the really important question to, to think about in this broader story that I'm trying to tell here is, is what you asked, which is why Central and South America, and, I, and we could also throw in there the Caribbean as, as part of that. And, and in short, we can think about this as this region was seen as much more strategically essential um, to many U.S. audiences at the time in both economic and geopolitical terms. And, but, what, but what you begin to see during the, the, the kind of discussion of colonies during this era by the Republican Party is that you have a combination of the kind of racial republicanism that had been evident um, within the ACS movement and, and, in, in the, and that had been amplified at, that I just talked about a moment ago in Liberian independence but that being wedded to a more explicitly kind of economically focused imperial agenda for the United States and one that is looking even further um, uh, beyond um, the region. Um, and so it's, it's being driven in part by interest in the, the specific character of the region that we have um, taking place in a lot of um, U.S. discourse at the time. Travel writers, diplomats, entrepreneurs are all interested in Central and South America for various reasons particularly for the prospect of building canals, railroads, ports, um, coaling stations for commercial shipping, as well as coaling stations for um, U.S. military shipping. And this was aimed at, in many ways, um, viewing the region as a base for resource extraction, as well as a a kind of stepping stone to interoceanic transit uh, between the Pacific and Atlantic Oceans, and eventually imagining the, the United States having a greater kind of imperial presence around the globe. 
And I think that context is important because you do occasionally see flashes of the idea that Liberia, for instance, could serve as an entree to um, African commercial interests um, or military interests. And the U.S. military was very much involved in um, creating the colony and and, and supporting it. But... um, but during this period of time, it's it's very differently, I think, pitched in terms of what its significance is. It, part of it is to deal with the questions around um, the the black population in the U.S. and what would be done in the in the absence of slavery. And many um, white audiences did not want to see African Americans be part of the U.S. body politic, as I'd mentioned um, all those movements recently in the Midwest states. But um, but they also were not necessarily attracted to the idea of, of Liberia, despite the fact that it was an independent um, uh, nation at that point. And so we see all, all this kind of energy flowing into that, that region that is seen as part of America's future um, in, in both hemispheric terms and in global terms. And I think one crucial kind of context for understanding that is that it's really being pitched as a counter to a slaveholder's vision of empire in that region, um, which we see, um, of course, in the, the very famous filibustering campaigns um, that many people know about, um, led by William Walker in Nicaragua. But there's a whole host of others, examples of, of, of um, slaveholders wanting to essentially reproduce the, um, the institution of slavery throughout parts of the tropics in Central and South America. And um, import or reinstitute the institution of slavery and colonize those regions um, for for U.S. interests, and so you have, in many ways, the the colonizationist model for the, this region of creating black colonies um, in Central and South America that would um, that would be, and it was again at this stage often ill defined, um, but would either be part. Um, carved out of existing republics in the region or would somehow be incorporated into those existing republics. That is seen as a way of countering to some extent the 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 vision of of slaveholders, which is to um to kind of import slavery into those regions. And and I think if we think about it in that context, what you have are, you know, at this moment of sectional tension, two kind of com- competing visions of US empire. Um, one that's being advanced by whites who are committed to slavery and extending the reach of slavery, and one advanced by whites who are at least nominally kind of committed to ending slavery or, or, or transitioning out of slavery. But both of them, of course, were, were aimed at harnessing um, those racial distinctions and hierarchies and ultimately imposing a vision of U.S. hegemony um, within the Western Hemisphere. Um, and so neither of these, of course, succeed, um, particularly because of, of the the outcomes of the war itself. But I, I would argue that both really have important legacies and imprints on um, the future of U.S. empire going forward. Well, Dr. Mills, thank you very much for coming on and discussing your book. Um, I always encourage our listeners to become readers and pick up the book for themselves. Once again, it is The World Colonization Made the Racial Geography of Early American Empire. Um, in any case, thank you very much for coming on today. Thanks so much for having me. Hello. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.